Hey everybody, welcome to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And welcome back to our discussion of the Bible, canon, theology, discussion of scripture. Um, so we've gone through a couple different episodes already, and we left off last time discussing how we can be sure that we have the correct manuscripts of scripture, how we can be sure that the Bible that you have in your hands is what, or as close as we can absolutely possibly be to what was originally written down to the autographs. So we've kind of done a lot of this background work Tyler, we've, we've gotten through, okay, we're, we're, we're sure of, of the scriptural text. We're sure of these things. Now that I've got the Bible in my hands, what do I what do I do with it? How do I read it? Right. Well, obviously, we want to understand it. Uh, we want to know what it's being communicated. And uh, we've already talked about the attributes of scripture, that it's inspired and it's inerrant and all the rest of that. And um, like you said, we are sure as we can be, and I think that's very sure, that the book we hold in our hands is the right one. Right. So... Uh, if we know that, then we've got to read it. <laughs> uh, I mean, just really that basic. Yeah. You've got to read the Bible. You've got to learn it. You've got to understand what it means. And that's really what we're going to look at today is is the science of interpretation. And, and this is a fancy word, but it's a good word that you need to know. And this is the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the science of interpreting the Bible. And while we come at this and it's going to seem like a, a kind of academic and upper level discussion, everybody has a hermeneutic when mm-hmm. they read the Bible, whether you think you do or not. And if whether even if you say something like, I, I just want to read it and, and do what it says. Okay, that's a hermeneutic that you're applying. How do you know right. that this verse applies to you? And you say, well, if it's in there, then it applies to me. All right, well, that's your hermeneutic is that it's all for you, that that implies things like the audience doesn't matter originally. All that matters is that what you think and what you can get out of it. So it's important if we're going to have a hermeneutic anyway, we've got to take the time to think it through. And uh, a, a lot of these conversations we have as Christians involve us deciding how we're going to do things properly rather than just doing it naturally. Because, I mean, Zach, how are some ways we could get, be misleading, misled just by jumping to the Bible and, and trying to interpret it without any forethought? Well, yeah, I think that's a good point, right? Because it, it sounds sometimes like a really spiritual thing to say, oh, I don't I don't need all that theology. I don't need all those fancy terms. I don't need a hermeneutic. I'm just going to read this Bible and and I'm going to obey it. And, and, and of course, that's, you know, it comes from a good impulse, right? Yeah, that's there are a good worse thing. places to start than that. <laughs> Absolutely. But so you're coming to the Bible, you're reading it. But like you said, let's say you, you open up to, we you know, we just finished up the book of Leviticus uh, last night. And let's say you open up the book of Leviticus and it gives you some very clear instruction. You say, okay, I have to obey that instruction because this is what the Bible says. Well, the, an error, I would argue, that you've fallen into is that your your hermeneutic, your way of reading scripture, doesn't distinguish between what God said in his law to his chosen people before Jesus and what he's saying to us today. And therefore, you're not understanding maybe the differences between those, and you might run into some difficult issues, and, and people have done that before, right? So right. yeah, it, it, it comes down to, like you said, you want to you wanna have a hermeneutic that you're having on purpose, because otherwise you'll have one that you have on accident, uh, and you can run into some issues from just bad readings to like, that's how heresy happens sometimes. Yeah, and uh, what, what will inevitably happen is you will start reading the Bible according to your culture, mm. and that can be sure. church culture, which is kind of what we've been describing, which is just read your Bible and do what it says. And there are some places, a lot of places in the Bible that totally fit that, but not all of them. But if you are coming from a more secular culture, you might read the Bible thinking, all right, well, I know that 
some of it's going to be good, but most of it's going to be kind of not right and it's not, you know, not modern or, or you're going to come at it with the whole, you know, this is a, a myth that we're going to try to extract morals yep. from, yeah, yeah. even though, okay, that, that might, I think a lot of times that's an error, uh, even of something as basic as genre, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, this isn't being written as a myth. This is being written as a poem or it's being written as a letter to a person. And you interpret a letter differently than you would interpret a song or a story or a legal book. And we have all of those things in scripture. So even at the most basic level, you've got to know what you're reading. And, and so what this comes to is this is a theological process. And even if you don't think it is, it it absolutely is. So we're going to take the time to figure out what we do and why we do it. And for us today, what we're going to be talking about is the importance of exegesis. Here's another $5 word for you. The first <laughs> one is hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. Exegesis is the process of determining what the text means. So Ex, ek means to come out of something, like exit, right? So we're trying to extract the meaning from the text. We're trying to say, what is it trying to say? The opposite of that is eisegesis, which I'm trying to read meaning into the text. At the worst extreme, you have people that say, I don't really care what the Bible says originally. I just like this phrase, so I'm going to make it mean whatever I want it to mean. Or others who say the Bible really doesn't have much meaning on its own. We've got to interpret our own meaning into it. Well, we don't believe that. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation, and we need to read it to determine what God was saying through his words. And this is really what it means. God used words to reveal himself, and we believe that we can know what words mean, and that's why God revealed himself that way. And so uh, really this is about how are we going to read these words and and learn what they mean. Well, and that point you made about the, the revelation is so important because I think a lot of times people who feel intimidated or like they don't like the idea of this theological approach to things that – maybe a way to if you're maybe you're there maybe you're saying yeah that's that sounds that's all academic that's not what i want i want to spiritually approach the bible no i i agree with you brother or sister absolutely that's what we're trying to do we're trying to take the bible seriously and recognize that it's god's word not just man's word and therefore what your hermeneutical approach to the bible does is it correctly prepares your heart and your mind to approach scripture as it is not to approach it as maybe you think it should be or maybe as your culture would want it to be so it's actually a it's a careful way of approaching scripture to be watchful that you don't, like you said, bring your meaning to it and you allow the the word to speak. That's our goal, right? Is to allow the word to speak to us, not like you said, the other way around. Right. And if you feel like some of this process feels technical, it is, but I'll just say it again, maybe a little differently than I just said it a minute ago. God could have given us anything. Mm. He gave us a book. (laughs) Therefore, the study of words and sentences and grammar and structure and genre and symbolism are very important for a Christian yeah. because God gave us a book and we need to learn to know what the book means. So uh, a lot of this will seem obvious to some of you that have been in this for a long time, but uh, it's good to to stand on these. What we're going to do is we're going to start with four principles that are going to govern how we study the word. So uh, kind of our exegesis, our hermeneutic is the following four things. And then when we come to the second half, we're going to look at three steps that you can take to interpret and study your Bible. So four principles and then three practical steps. So the first principle is that we have what's called a literal hermeneutic. And we've talked about this before, that The Bible means what it says. 
We, we believe in interpreting the Bible literally. Now, right away, we have, you know, let's take the example of Revelation, that there's a seven-headed dragon that John sees in the book of Revelation. All right, now we do not, because there's a literal interpretation, believe that one day a giant seven-headed dragon will go rampaging through the streets of Babylon. What we know from that passage is that that dragon with its seven heads represents the world empires that are culminating in the last final world empire. It's a symbol. So when we say literal, what we mean is this symbol is speaking of something that is literally true. It might be better to call this regular hermeneutics, that the Bible, as properly understood, is to be taken as it is written. That means we don't believe that there's hidden messages behind the text, that there's no secret codes, that we don't have to try and decipher what was really being said, that when you read the words in their context and in their their genre, they mean what they say. Yeah, and this and that, is pretty obvious to me, right, Zach? If God gave us a book, then we want to read it. Yeah, and it, it, it might almost sound too obvious. Like you, some some people, maybe, maybe you're from a more a school of interpretation where you you already have some objections, and you say, "Oh, that's too simplistic." And we'll talk about that in a minute. We we don't mean we've already talked about. We don't mean the most ignorant kind of foolish way to do this. You be careful. Like you said, you look at the context, look at the genre to make that correct, regular, literal interpretation. But maybe there's some people where this is just what you've always assumed and you might kind of shrug your shoulders and say, duh, who would who would do anything else? Well, I mean, historically in the church... Most people would not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Historically in the church, I just finished up a really great book um, talking about the early church fathers and it was explaining them. It was really interesting. It did a good job of helping you to understand them and have some... To, to really draw some cool things from them. But one thing that the guy said in the book is he said, you need to understand that almost all of them interpreted scripture allegorically. And that was just the accepted way that they did things. They looked at the Bible and they said, and this came from origin. It came from a lot of different, you know, early theologians in the early days of the church. Yeah. Well, you just read the book. Can you give us the, the five second version of who origin was? Yeah. I mean, origin was, he, he was, he was a really awesome scholar and theologian, but his, he believed that there was two meanings to the text. There was the simple, what we would call the, the exegetical meaning the, the, and then he said, that's good. You understand that, but you've got to go to the higher meaning, which is this deep symbolism that's encoded in scripture that that's really what you're supposed to teach. And so that would lead to him teaching things like in song of Solomon, you know, not to be gross, but in, in song of Solomon, it has some pretty explicit, specific imagery. And he interpreted all that imagery to be about like the Bible. Yeah, I think he said where it says your your twin breasts are two fawns. Yep. He's like, no, the breasts are the Old and New Testament. Right. And now so I would kind of come to that and I'd say, yeah. you know, Brother Origin, <laughs> I, I just don't think that's really what it's intending to mean there. Yeah. And and so, you know, this is a very common difference of opinion that's happened in the church. And and we want to be clear. Sometimes the Bible is allegorical. Right. Sometimes the Bible intentionally, yes. explicitly says, look, this is an allegory. Read it this way. But unless there's a good contextual reason to think that's how a passage should be read, you your first step, like you're saying, should be, what What does this mean, though? Like we always used to tell the high school kids. What does it mean? What is it saying? And what is the simple understanding of that? Yeah. Now, I want to just jump on what you said. Sometimes the Bible is allegorical. Like sometimes it'll, you know, the prophets, for example, will use allegory to describe things. But sometimes the New Testament writers, for example, Paul uses uh, Hagar and Sarah yep. as an yeah. allegory of the flesh and the spirit. Mm-hmm. And if you look at how he does it, it's a, it's a great allegory because, you know, Ishmael was the son that Abram had according to his flesh and Isaac was the one he had according to the will of God and the spirit. So what what here's how you can in some cases have your cake and eat it too, <laughs> is if you recognize that the book of Genesis is telling us a true story right. about a real person that these events happen to, 
if you can see what are essentially preaching points that you can draw from that, you know, uh, a great example of this is Joseph has a lot of great typology and and parallels to the life of Jesus. Oh yeah. But it's never explicitly drawn out in the Bible, but we can see that and we can we can say Joseph functions as an allegory of Christ even though we believe that everything that happened to Joseph really happened. But we can believe that God in his providence and in overseeing the the formation of his word has brought these things together. The danger is when you say things are allegorical, there's a there's a deeper meaning is if that deeper meaning is totally disconnected from the text itself. You can't and you skip. can't there's no way to check it. <laughs> right. There's no way to come at it and and uh all right, how can how did you come to this conclusion? Well, you've just got to be able to see the depths of the it's like, no, 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 that's not how we do this. The Bible is a book written in the way books are normally written, and it should be read in the way that it's normally written. So, you know, you read the poems like you would read any poem. You read the right. stories like you would read any story. You read the, the letters like you'd read a letter, and the prophets like you read prophets. Now, obviously, there's more weight to them, but I, I, this, is, this is something else that we could get into here. There are some that do not like the idea of reading the Bible literally because they say things, I think Karl Barth was one of the guys that mm-hmm. got into this. He tried to more bridge the gap more than others did, but they'll say, God is so grand and so great. God cannot be limited by human language. And they'll talk about how humans can't express certain things. And uh, they say, because God is so great, he, words cannot adequately express his truth. Therefore, he did his best. He condescended himself in giving these words. But, you know, it's the word is inherently going to be limited. Okay, now here's here's what I'll say to that. <laughs> There is truth to that in that God is greater than anything we can comprehend. And I think part of heaven is going to be us developing our spiritual and mental capacities to further understand God. Of course. But here's, here's two things I'll say to that. Number one, I believe God is capable in his own great power of condescending himself into language that will adequately and accurately communicate his truth. I don't think that the Holy Spirit is limited by language. I think the Holy Spirit is able to use language to communicate the truth. I think God is able to do that. And I also, on the other side of that, do not believe that people, if God so limited himself that the word cannot adequately express all that he is, it is the height of arrogance to think that we can pick apart his word, know where he was being condescending, and go beyond or even against what it says in order to come to what we call the accurate conclusion. Right. So either way, what you end up with is God gave you a book and you've got to read the book. Yeah, you I mean, have you ever run across that, Zach? I have. Well, isn't God bigger than his word? I have. Actually, I, I, was, I, was, I had the privilege of being in a class uh, at at Liberty with a professor named John Morrison. I think he's with the Lord now, but he wrote a book called Has God Said about, which is very good. I recommend everybody read it if you can get a hold of it. And it's about, he actually talked about Karl Barth a lot in that book. And he talked about how Karl Barth kind of started this trend. He argued in the book that Karl Barth kind of said this, and then people came after him and said, well, like Karl Barth said, and that actually wasn't what he had said, which, you know, can tend to happen. My, my, without doing a ton of research myself, the things I've read about Karl Barth is, he was definitely a brother, but he said a lot of unfortunate things in an attempt to be extra clever. That kind of was his And some people yeah. took it and ran with it in some really exactly. terrible Exactly. And so his, his whole book was arguing, look, you, th- we have good, not only do we have good, but we, we have to philosophically and, and in order to approach scripture, we have to accept that God chose 
to speak to us in through words, language, sentences, and all these things. And if we just say, yes, that's true, but actually there's this other meaning, or like you said, there's no way God could say that, we're not making a we're not making some super spiritual statement. We're actually making a statement that says that God's unable to communicate with us, which is kind of ludicrous, right? Why yes. would God why would God give us a book then if he can't actually bridge the gap and ensure that we can understand what he meant? Right. And and he so he did this really excellent kind of tearing a part of that and explaining, no, that's that's not exactly, that's not what it is at all. It's that you actually want there to be this ambiguousness where you can kind of drop in whatever meaning that you would please. And that is what happens is yeah. when people say things like, well, look, God couldn't give us his whole truth, but now we're so smart <laughs> that we're able to know what's actually true. And that's not even just related to scientific matters. That's kind of where the foot was in the door, but now it's even extended to like ethical things. Yeah. Like I've heard people say things like, you know, well, Jesus couldn't have told people then that homosexuality was okay because they wouldn't have received it. So he, he told them that it wasn't so that they would accept it. But now we know better. I mean, that That is the height of letting your passions drive your interpretations. I mean, th this is not an okay way to go about this. It even affects, in some people, the way they understand the incarnation. They say that Jesus himself limited himself and essentially lied to people right. because they couldn't handle it. I think Jesus said plenty of things that people just couldn't handle and yeah. blew their minds. That's all Jesus and, did. <laughs> and you know what I'll say too, at the, at the risk of... I don't think this is blasphemous, but some people might, you know, feel edgy when I say this. I think when you make claims like that, that God is so big, he can't be limited by language, I think you are selling humanity short. I think you are selling the capacity that God has put within his people to understand him too short. I think that God has created us in his image, right. that we are able to know God, we're able to grasp his truth. And when, obviously, there's a great disparity between God and man, but when you stretch that disparity so far to say things like, we couldn't possibly even know anything about God, well, that's that's not true, and that's not fair. And I think that the Lord gives people his word because he says, I want you to know me. I'm inviting you into my truth, and I'm also going to hold you responsible for that truth. So... Well, not only that, but yeah, you're selling right. God short too. So it's, it's both. It, yes, you, yeah, both of those. You sell God short, and you act. It's as if, as if, if you really believe that God exists and that He created the universe, but sometimes you're you're having a problem that He made a book that can communicate to us. I, I don't doesn't make sense to me. I'll never forget. I was reading one time. I was reading. Um, I think I was reading in Psalms. This was right when I started going to to, to college, and I was coming. I was reading Psalms along with this commentary. And it was just working out some of these things in my heart, in my faith, and, and the commentary was pointing out just the poetic beauty of the language. And I was kind of stumbling over that. And I was saying, well, wait a second, it's the Bible. Like, what do you mean it has, like, it's not like any other book. Like, and then at one point, I'll never forget, it was like the Lord spoke to me. He was like, hey, I'm, I'm also really good at writing poetry when I write poetry, <laughs> you know? And it just kind of made me laugh because of course, like why wouldn't the Lord be able to communicate with us, not only his truth, but also his truth in a way that's beautiful and exceptional. I mean, that's, he did it, he doesn't make bad creation. No. If you look at the creation, it's not, it's not, oh, I can almost see what God meant when he made a dolphin. No, that's not how it works, right? And so in the same way, God is able to communicate to us through the written word. And I would argue that God specifically chose it because it's the best way that he could communicate to us. So there would be no ambiguity. We could read yeah. and imagine like we actually have what he said, not just impressions that somebody tells us about. It's actually, no, this is what God said. So it's it's a safeguard for us. And, and a lot of contemporary theologians and thinkers who will make this case a lot of them have bought into uh, 
various postmodern theories of language and speech. Oh, sure, and, sure, 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 sure. You know, wor- words can never properly communicate everything that a person... I, I disagree. I just totally disagree with that. And I don't think because somebody wrote an interesting book where they split language up into interesting divisions that I have to accept that as gospel. Bible yeah, says God spoke. To... Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, right? right? God said and expects people to know what he meant, right? So if you read the Bible, I mean, people talk to God. Like Moses yeah. talked to God like he talked to a, to a friend and Abraham spoke to God face to face. And Jesus, the word made flesh, spoke to his people. And so here's, look, a, free, yeah. here's a free practical hermeneutic technique or tip for you. If you bring any book to the desk with you when you sit down to interpret scripture and that book gets open first, you, you have an issue. <laughs> and I, and I, I yeah. mean this across the board, brothers and sisters, like whatever book you're bringing, if it's Foucault or Derrida or any of these, you know, language, uh, what's the, the term that I'm looking for? Speech it's, act theory. Yeah. All these different basically ideas why we can't actually communicate in words. If you, if you bring that book to you, you know, metaphorically to the table first, when you go to open scripture, then you're going to read scripture through that lens and you will not be doing scripture, the justice and the respect of letting it speak to you first. And, and that's true. Look, you could go get some other book. And that could apply even to commentaries and Anything. systematic theologies Absolutely. and all if of that. You, yes. If you if you bring a great, you could bring the best uh, theology that I would agree with. But if you, if you open that first and say, well, I, this has to mean that because this says this, and you're pointing somewhere other than the text, then you're not doing a proper exegetical hermeneutic of scripture where you're letting the Bible speak to you first. And I think so many of those things, uh, whether they were intended this way initially, a lot of them were actually, but... Uh, they're so diabolical, and I mean that mm. specifically because sure. di- you know diabolical is like Diablo, like devilish. It's diabolical because you're trying to undermine not people's distrust in the Word of God, but in all words ever, like any right. book, any writing ever. And you know, God gave us a book, so I can see the insidious nature behind that. So we first principle interpret the Bible literally or regularly, if you prefer. What we mean by that is you read the Bible according to the normal rules of language, that you're not looking for secret hidden things behind it. There is an, in, an infinite depth to the scripture, but that there, there is limited width, shall we say. The pool might be a thousand miles deep, but the pool is defined by the mm-hmm. words that God has chosen in his sovereignty. So the fact that God said one thing and not another is the very basic foundation of all of our proper Bible study. Yep. All right. So that's principle one. Principle two is our exegesis, our hermeneutic is historical. We read the Bible historically. So what does this mean? Means that we read the Bible in context and especially the context in which it was originally received. So we know this, the Bible was written at a certain place and a certain time. Most of the Bible was what we call occasional meaning that it was written Mm -hmm. at a specific occasion. Not all of it. Romans might be our best example in the New Testament of a letter that was not occasional, meaning there was not a specific thing written. Uh, The prophets obviously were occasional. They were writing about certain circumstances. Some of the Psalms were not. David was just writing a song, right? So uh, in that context, that's how we interpret it. That means we emphasize what the author was trying to say, We call that authorial intent. This is what you're seeking after. Obviously, the Lord as the capital A author, but even Paul, Malachi, David, 
Ezra, what were they trying to say when they wrote this to the original audience to which it was given? And so the the short version is historical interpretation means what did these words mean when they were first written to the first people that received them? Yeah, and, and I think that this is super important because this is where some of the most crazy bad doctrine comes from. When typically when I when I ask somebody, well, how do you read this passage? And they they give me something, and I kind of cock my head to the side and I say, well, what do you what do you mean? And then I ask them more about it. I come up, I find really quickly that they either don't understand or have chosen to ignore the context of the passage. It can get you into trouble so fast, <laughs> and and it helps. The context helps you to close doors in a sense like let's say you read a passage and well what could this mean what could mean these five things the context helps you to close maybe two or three of the doors immediately and say well i don't think it can mean that because look how this was originally intended in the audience it was originally intended for that that wouldn't have made sense to them so it can't mean that let's let's go down this door instead and so it's a good way to eliminate some really bad and weird interpretations of things yeah so a very common view of the bible is that it is like it's like a book of maxims. It's like a toilet book where you open it up and it's just got a lot of little pithy sayings that you can kind of get yeah, your, the, your the, word for. The, or, the, or even some people sometimes use it almost like the I Ching. What's the, the, the divination oh, yeah, book, the, the I Ching. The it's I like, Ching, the Chinese thing. Yeah. I'm going to flip it open and right. see what it says. Yeah. Uh, that's not what the Bible is. There are parts of it that are kind of like that. The book of Proverbs would be an example, maybe some of the Sermon on the Mount. But even that was written in con- Like You've got to know that Solomon wrote this, and right. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he was a king, and he was writing it to his son. So it's got a, a very male emphasis in it. Like All of that informs how you read it. You know that it's a, you know, that it's a, a poetic or sorry, a a wisdom book so that he's not making profound theology statements. He's making practical observations about life. So uh, here's a, here's a great verse. I I flagged this one to use. Let's read this verse from Ezra 10 verse three says, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to him. According to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. So the people all say, we're going to divorce our wives and put away our children. If you were to just drag that verse out, oh, it's in the Bible that it's good to get rid of your wives and kids. No, no, no. That was a specific thing Mm -hmm. said by a specific man in a specific time for a specific reason. And if you don't understand that, you're going to misinterpret the passage. You might even react to this. How could they say that? Well, Well, go back and read it. And see what he was trying to say, that you, you've got to read it historically, meaning in its context, not just the context of paragraphs and, and chapters and things, but the context of how it was written and how it came about. This is why, if you've ever been to a Calvary Chapel church for any length of time, that we will have extended times where we talk about the background of a book. So we're going to start the book of Daniel. We're going to spend time talking about who Daniel was. Who wrote this book? What date was it written? Where was it written to? What was the circumstance surrounding the writing of this book? Because that's going to inform how you understand it. So you read the book of Titus, and Paul is talking a lot about the qualifications for elders. Why? Because he was sending Titus to Crete to be essentially the bishop of Crete until he could raise up other people. Titus's mission was to raise up other leaders. So Paul writes him a little book about these are the kinds of qualities you look for in a leader. If you read the book of Galatians and you don't know who the Judaizers were, you're going to wonder why Paul is so bent out of shape by this. And so context and history and, and authorial intent matters.
So Zach, let's talk about, for example, a verse ripped out of context. Everybody loves judge not that you be not judged. Oh, Matthew yeah. 7 verse Everybody 1. Everybody knows that one. Everybody likes that one. Uh, has it ever been taken out of context? <laughs> I'd say it almost more than it actually has been not to, you're right and people use it for everything right oh I'm you know hey th this you know brother or sister in Christ this is not the way that we should be acting well don't be judging me you know and 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 all that right and and that comes right from us reading that with our own attitudes and opinions from the culture that we live in starting there and saying see this agrees with the thing that I like so therefore that's what it must mean so you see how, we're, in other words, we're coming with an opinion, we're reading something in the text that agrees with our opinion, and then we're lifting it out and using it as a weapon for our, our opinion, right? Now, does the, the passage, right, is talking about some specific things. Jesus is talking about not letting sin go unnoticed. He's talking about hypocrisy. He's talking about handling your issues, right? First, deal with the, the log in your own eye. He explains how we should judge, right? Right, and, yeah. And, and so there's a lot in that passage, and some of it actually pertains to the thing that people lift out of context. Some of it does pertain to the idea that, hey, don't go around and, and you know, be pointing out everybody's sins all the time. That's true, but you can only get to a proper interpretation of that passage if you understand all of the stuff that's going on. And if you just grab those, and this is an important, I, I tell people this a lot of times, you cannot just read the words of a passage and then take those words out like a magic spell and say, see, this, these words in this sequence mean this. So now this is a truth that I can take all through my life and point at things, right? Yeah. You have to look at the whole context and say, what did this, what does this mean? What is the Lord trying to say to communicate to me through mm -hmm. this? And like we said, that's not going to mean some totally different thing. It's no. just going to be informed by the context. And that's very, very important. That's what we mean by historical. So if you, right. if somebody in 2022 says, judge not that you be not judged, like in our context, that that's like one of those coexist bumper stickers. Right. It's like, I'm on spring break and you can't tell me what to do. I can right. do whatever I want. It's like, let's just pause for a minute. Do you really think that's what Jesus was trying to say in that passage? <laughs> right. Do you think Jesus was saying you can have whatever religion you want and you can do whatever you want and you can, you know, get weird face tattoos on a weekend because no one can judge you? That's not, he, you read it, like he said, he's talking about hypocrisy. To those, what did the people that first heard those words think when they heard judge not? Because that's what Jesus meant. That's what we mean by trying to chase down authorial intent, reading it historically. And when you read it historically, it makes an awful lot of sense. Jesus's whole point in that passage is like the way you treat people is how God is going to treat you and how then people will treat you. So slow down. Don't be just walking around judging people. Make sure you got your own your own house in order before you start criticizing somebody else. And that's we hear that and go, well, that that makes an awful lot of sense. Well, yeah, we hate it. When our favorite politician gets one of his <laughs> quotes taken out of context, don't we? I, I'll, I'll just go ahead and pick on uh, those that love Donald Trump a little bit here. They cannot stand it when something he says gets clipped and spread everywhere. And it's like, but you didn't hear everything he said before that and after that. And you didn't hear that he canceled that out five seconds later. And everything he said before that was building to this. He didn't just say that one statement in isolation and people get on TV, oh, this is just reprehensible. Who could say such a thing? Or when an athlete says something in a press yeah, yeah. conference. And, you know, I, I even that's an example. It's like, oh, can you believe that, uh, you know, Kevin Garnett just went off and just yelled really loud and said this about somebody. And it's like, well, maybe this was right after he'd been knocked to the ground after going up for a dunk and he got up and was you know angry and then he collected himself right after that the history of that right mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. context of that matters 
And so we get so finicky about that with ourselves or our favorite politicians or our favorite athletes or celebrities. We should be even more so with the word of God. Right. Now, the opposite but related side of this is something that you're all pretty familiar with. And this is this is deconstructionism. And it's related to reader response theory, which we've talked about at length. Reader response theory says there is no meaning in the text of itself. There is only the meaning that I generate when I respond to it. But a little twist on that is that a deconstructionist will will look at the text and say what it says means nothing. And that's very interesting. They say all that matters is context. The text itself doesn't matter. Right. This is fascinating to me because you got some people that say neither context doesn't matter, only the text and how I respond to it. These people say all that matters is the background and the presuppositions of this person. It doesn't matter what they said. We know what they meant. And this is maybe something that frustrates you a lot in, when you see it in the news <laughs> and cancel culture. It gets into this kind of stuff. Like It doesn't matter your tone. It doesn't matter what you meant. So what people like that will do when they come to the Bible is we don't want to find out what it means. We want to find out the meaning behind the meaning. So you'll, you'll come to this and you'll say, now, all right, this, this person writing this book was a straight man. So we have to read the homophobia into what he said because obviously he's writing from his position of privilege. Feminist theology will do this. They'll say, everything the Bible says about women was written by men. Therefore, they're writing from their bias. So we've got to take that apart. Liberation theology will do this mm -hmm. for race. They'll say, well, this was written by people that were in power. Therefore, we've got to deconstruct that and admit, it might mean something totally different. So I know what they meant even more than they did. And uh, if you've ever had a friend that is into this kind of thing, it's it's you feel like they're reacting to things that you didn't say because they believe that they know what you really meant when you said that. So I've used this illustration before, but the book of Hosea is a story in the Bible of God sending his prophet to marry a prostitute. And then she cheats on him and she has children with other men. And uh, he goes back and buys her from the slave market. And it's a beautiful picture of redemption. But they look at that and they say, well, we know Hosea was writing this as a religious man. And that's his privilege. So let's look at it the other way. Gomer, his wife, was trying to live out her sexual liberation. And that's why she's portrayed as the bad guy in this story. And when he comes and redeems her from the slave market, that's him asserting uh, ownership over her and we've got to break free of that and now the example that God gave becomes a negative example and you've completely inverted the meaning of it so that we, we see this everywhere but it's it's worse when it when it comes to scripture right you'll know this is starting to happen if you're having a conversation with somebody and you they seem obsessed with the idea that whatever a person was whatever is on paper whatever the person was trying to say there must be an ulterior motive behind that that there's this constant fixation on like yeah 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 but 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 what it what was really going on yeah well and 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 I say this like I I'm trying to be um I want to be sympathetic to this because once you begin it's kind of like that scene in the Matrix once you begin thinking that you have the ability to take a text apart like that it's a very addictive um drug where all of a sudden you think you're seeing the code behind everything yeah. and then there's books that are telling you you are seeing the code behind everything and and it, this contributes to people's loss of faith a lot 
-hmm. and it's very sad and very damaging. And so this is why you guys wonder maybe why are they making such a big deal out of how I read the Bible? This is why is because there is a possibility if you read these books that tell you that this is the way to understand scripture, that you go into these very dark little holes where it's hard for you to even explain to somebody down that path how they are wrong <laughs> because everything you're saying to them, they're interpreting through, yeah, yeah, but you would say that because you're this, this, and that. So we are being strong about this and cautioning you. And and it's it's this is why we don't believe that script, reading scripture is something, reading or interpreting scripture is not something anybody can do. It is a spiritual endeavor. Right. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He yeah. said that the spiritual things are not able to be discerned right. by the natural man. So this is what I mean by, again, we come back to theology. You'll notice what is totally missing from that deconstructionist view, and that mm. is God. Yeah. There's no belief that God inspired this word. Now, does the Bible have a bias? Yeah, it's wide open about it because God is saying, I'm the one that made yeah. this world. It's my world. I can do it the way that I want, and here's how it's to be done. Now, if you don't believe in God or you don't believe that people were inspired by God and they just wrote these things for the purposes of advancing their own agenda, then we're, we're on totally different planets here. And this is why I will tell people, if somebody doesn't believe in God and they just believe that the Bible is a human book, yep. then you do not need to let them tell you how to interpret your Bible. Nope. You're starting from totally different positions. It doesn't matter how many letters they have after their names. It yep. doesn't matter how many awards they have. If they don't know God, they are less equipped to study the Bible than the newest drug addict that got saved this morning. Yes. No, this I, is a will, spiritual yes. thing we're doing. <laughs> I'll double underline that. I, I, we, we talk about this all the time. I, I would... And I want to encourage you, I want to speak directly to you, especially if you're a young guy or girl who's coming into getting excited about theology and you go out and you start raiding all the shelves for these commentaries and you get super excited. I, I want to ask you to go look up on Wikipedia or somewhere simple, the author of every book that you're going to allow to teach you about scripture. Yeah. Do, be careful with it and go look. And you know what? He, that person doesn't have to be from your denomination. They don't have to agree with you about, how, you know, the, the five points of Calvinism, whatever you think about that. That's not, it's okay. You can read from many, many different people who are within the household of faith. And I would say you should do that. But I want to warn you very specifically, if that person, if it, if it says, well, they, you know, got a, a degree from Harvard Divinity and they've spent all, they've spent all their life writing about, you know, the, the, whatever, the terrible legacy of the church. And then you keep reading and you don't find a section that talks about the church they go to or what they believe about jesus that person has nothing to say to you about scripture right. absolutely nothing yeah and they can only say right. to you things that will be muddled and they will misunderstand scripture because they don't know god and i, I want to be really clear with that because it's very easy for you to get intimidated and say well but and you'll see this online you'll read and someone will say well you know scholars say about the, this is this is what we know right. about the new testament now which scholars? Yeah. And and Christians, <laughs> we're not beholden to scholars. No, no, no. We're we're beholden to pastors and teachers, right? That no. that's that's where the authority lies in God's church. Mm -hmm. And you know, some of these schools. I mean, I think this is Harvard. If I'm if I'm mistaken, please excuse me. But it was one of those schools. I, I think recently had a day of repentance and fasting and mourning for their missions efforts that they used to do, <laughs> because it was colonialism and oppression. So, well, wait a minute. Jesus told us to go out into all the world and spread the gospel. It's like, yeah, well, but that's that's colonialism. Some of these people, and we've kind of gotten off on this, but it's important. It I, some of these people have a stated goal that I'm going to join the church as a theologian or a clergyman so that I can break apart the patriarchy. 
or I can break apart whiteness, or I can break apart any of this. So they're coming with no intention of interpreting the Bible as it was written, only of breaking it into pieces for their own social and political agenda. That is not how we read the Bible. And, and, and this is not how normal conversation works anyway. No, no. Like the, the, So many of these people will try to convince you that the way that you talk to people and read books and go about things, that there's something secret and hidden and evil behind that. Don't let anybody put that trip on you. No, no. And please don't misunderstand either and say, oh, this is because you have a political agenda. This is, is literally has nothing to do with politics. We're not speaking so strongly because well, we're... Well, not from our perspective, it doesn't. No, no, no. But, but we're, for, we're not These speaking... people we're talking about it very much. Does. Yes, but uh, when we are trying to explain these things to you, we're not saying, and that's because we don't like their politics. No, what, what it has to do with is who has authority to speak on matters in the household of faith. And look, we like, like Tyler said, we have enough pastors, teachers, leaders, and gosh, now we're blessed with scholars who mm-hmm. have studied these things and who passionately know and love Jesus. You don't have to go outside the walls of the church to somebody whose stated intention is, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Scripture, but I really love reading about all this history, and therefore I know what Scripture is about. Or, in fact, I hate the Bible, and yeah. I hate Jesus, and I hate the church. Yeah, which it's, it's, we're not speaking too strongly there. That is, that is some people who will say that about themselves. And I just want to encourage you, like, feel no obligation to listen to what those people have to say about the Word because they're what it's, Paul would call untaught. Yeah, it's blind leading the blind is yeah. how Jesus would put it. Absolutely. Um, we pray for these people. Yeah. But we speak strongly when it comes to the Bible. There are many people that are experts in lots of different fields, but when they come to the Bible, they are out of their league because we're talking about something spiritual. So yep. all of that was related to uh, people that want to get so far into the context that the text doesn't matter and break apart the context according to their own interpretations. Right. What we mean when we say we have a historical hermeneutic is that we read the Bible in context. We're trying to interpret it as it would have been understood the first time it was said. Mm -hmm. Now, we sometimes will read more into what was said, and that's what gets into our point number three. We have a comprehensive hermeneutic. So we have a literal hermeneutic, a historical hermeneutic, and now a comprehensive hermeneutic. We've already talked about this. The canon is closed. No more books are going to be written. Right. The text is confirmed. We have it right in front of us. That's textual criticism and all the rest. So when you study the Bible, you've got to study all of it. You can't just pick (laughs) one piece and interpret it by itself. You've got to let scripture interpret scripture. That's a great quote that's been attributed to just about every great man of God. So I don't know who said it first, but the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Yeah. Every book informs the other book. It's not even Old Testament against New Testament. It's the Old Testament interpreted through the lens of the New Testament. And even passages that seem like opposites are parts where we sit down and say, okay, Paul says, you know, saved by grace through faith. And James says, faith without works is dead. So, all right, what are we going to do? How are we going to interpret this? And that's what leads to the, the lesson of theology. So, We've got to do this. You've got to get the whole Bible involved. Now, this is easy when a prophecy, for example, references a commandment from the from the law, right? It says, I said to you to keep my Sabbath years. Like, okay, let's go back to Leviticus and explain what the Sabbath year was. Now Leviticus is influencing how we read Jeremiah and so on. Or in the New Testament, when it says this was done to fulfill what was said in the prophet Isaiah. And that kind of reminds us that, the, the Bible is assuming that you're reading all of it. 
especially the New Testament, yep. right? Especially, you know, Paul says that all these things were written for our instruction. Like, like you're not going to understand Revelation if you've not read Daniel before. It's going to seem really weird and strange to you. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, where did this come from? It came from Daniel. And that came from being influenced by other books as well. You've got to have the, the whole thing because we have a tendency, Zach, don't we, of having like a canon within the canon when we're trying to study well, the Bible. And that comes from because we haven't done a good job of what we're talking about, which is reading comprehensively. So if you have your favorite proof texts that prove your favorite bit of theology, right? And I won't pick on anybody. It doesn't really matter because we, we all do this. Oh, well, I, I really, uh, I agree with this way of interpreting this doctrine. And here's the three verses that prove that. I, I, and I, I, I hesitate sometimes even to use the word prove because it, people approach scripture like as if it's a geometry thing where it's like, look, <laughs> because of this and this and this, now there can be nothing else to say about that. And it's like, well, but the Lord didn't write us three verses about that. The Lord wrote us a massive book. And here's three other passages that seem to add another layer of meaning, another shade to that. And you haven't addressed those at all, right? And right. this is where we can run into real problems of overstating ourselves on certain doctrines is when we look at our couple of passages that agree with what we think and we either ignore or minimize passages that seem to either add something extra, not contradict. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying they add something extra and say, hey, you also need to account for this idea. And we fail to do that when we don't read all of scripture and let it inform what we're thinking theologically. It's very easy to present the Bible as having a narrow view of certain subjects. Yep. Sovereignty of God is one. It's real easy to dig through the Psalms and Romans and everywhere else and, and find God's statements of his absolute sovereignty. And you line them all up. It's like, look at all of this evidence. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not nothing. I mean, it's true. <laughs> but I could just as easily go through and find all these passages talking about how men have free will and how God laments over what they do and he wishes you wouldn't do that and God repented over what he had done. You could do that. But what you need to do is read it all together and arrive at a whole mm-hmm. picture, a comprehensive picture of what the Bible teaches. You've got to let every book, and you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means even something like Obadiah with 21 verses. If you're not factoring in the, if you want to use your geometry analogy, if you're not factoring in the data from Obadiah, you are not working with the whole puzzle. Right. And, if you're and- only reading the New Testament and you never read the Old, old, you're not working with the whole puzzle. And you'll know that somebody's doing this, or you'll catch yourself doing this, if you start pointing to a verse or a passage and say, yeah, but what does this say? But what does it say? Look at it. What, what does, does it say? What does this verse say? Right. What does this <laughs> verse say? And, right? And we're, we're kind of mocking because we've heard this done, or I've done this sometimes too. And 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 what you're doing there is you're, you, you're pushing to ignore other, other data in scripture that tells you, hey, I see what that verse says, but also this is true. So these need to cooperate and and inhabit what we know about this concept together. And if you're pushing one out and saying, no, 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 but what does this say? Then you're you're being guilty of not reading scripture in its full, what we call the full counsel of God. If you ever hear somebody say that, that's what they mean. It's look, you got to read all of it. All of it. You can't just pick. Here's an example. There's a guy that likes to call our church every now and then and <laughs> fight over the phone. Uh, one of the things that he'll bring up is, yes. uh, it, says, it says in the book of John, the very first chapter, that no one has seen God at any time. So the disciples saw Jesus. So how could Jesus be God? Now, if you're willing, if you honestly want to know the answer to that question, there's a pretty cool 
conversation we can have. For example, the next verse says, but the true God who was with the Father has made him known. And he says, we beheld his glories. Like no one has seen God, but God has revealed himself in Jesus. And if you read through the gospel of John, you keep on coming across that phrase again that no one has seen God, but Jesus will say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you not believe that I and the Father are one? And it's like, we have seen him. And, and they say- It's emphasizing the Trinity. Yeah, and they tell Nathaniel, yeah. come and see. Like yeah, yeah. That, that statement that he gives at the beginning is not supposed to prove that Jesus wasn't God. The opposite of that is true. Right, right, it's right, a right. whole theme, but <laughs> right. this guy, calling and yelling over the phone doesn't have time to hear the whole Bible explained. He just wants to harp on his one half of a verse. And mm-hmm. that's not how we study scripture. Yeah. You, it's okay to say things like, yes, we no one has seen God. I agree. But you then have to answer the question, if that's true, then how can Thomas look at Jesus and say, my Lord and right. my God? Right. That's the whole, right? Thomas said, until I see him. It's kind of the whole pinnacle of the book. But, you know, that, that's you've got to have the whole Bible. There's something else related to this that is called progressive revelation. And, Zach, that has nothing to do with politics, does it? <laughs> what is progressive revelation? Well, look, it just means, look, th- God, it, there's a story in the Bible. God is, is, is revealing himself to his people. And this, a lot of this has to do, when we're talking about progressive revelation, we're usually going to start talking about his people Israel. Because God reveals himself to his people in, in the law, right? And says, I want you to keep this. This is my perfect law. And then what happens? Well, they can't. Mm-hmm. So then God says in his prophets, okay, if you can't do that, I'm going to judge you. But I don't want that to happen. But here's what will happen if you don't obey. And then they don't obey, so they get judged. And then God sends Jesus and says, look, that was the times of old, but that's passed away because I've fulfilled the law. So you see how now, standing like reading the epistles, if we just pull something out of the epistles and we don't understand the progression of what has happened up to that point, we might make some mistakes. Or seen through the other end of the telescope, if we go back to Leviticus and say, but it says right here that you're supposed to stone people who commit adultery, <laughs> and we don't understand, yes, that's that's 100% right, and I'm not diminishing that by saying that God has then continued to reveal his, his the ways, we call this dispensational, uh, the ways mm-hmm. that he is working with man. And right now, that is not the way he's working with man anymore. Right. And, and that is, people will get upset with that and say, well, you're compromising, you. that's not what the Bible says. And it's like, no. I am I am viewing all of scripture and what it says, and you're actually doing what's called cherry picking, which is you're <laughs> grabbing a thing that reads the way that you want to read. And this is where a lot of legalistic teaching can come from, is people will grab something that says it in the strong way they like and ignore the fact that that is the way that God was dealing with us then, and he's dealing with us now differently. Right. There's, I mean, that's progressive revelation. Yeah. Progress. God revealed himself over a long time. It began with a, a general knowledge of God in the garden, and then with Adam and Eve and, and that. And then God worked with individuals, speaking them to them directly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Moses, God established a covenant and wrote down a legal binding covenant with the people. God interacted in all of their stories according to that law. He sent prophets to give them inspired words from him. Then Jesus came as the incarnate word of God and died on the cross and rose again. And the church wrote his stories down. And then they wrote down what happened in the early church. And then the apostles were writing to each other how to properly understand all of this. And the last thing he gave us was how he's going to conclude all of this in the book of Revelation. So you're, you, you can't read Deuteronomy as if the gospel of Luke doesn't exist if you're going to read the Bible comprehensively. 
You can't read something that says, well, you have to keep our Sabbaths and you have to keep these food laws without reading that Jesus said he declared all foods clean or that Paul said one man regards every day alike and one man regards one as special. So let each be fully convinced. You need the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like you're saying, from the old covenant to the new is a seismic shift in the Bible. And you say, well, how can we get away from this old covenant into the new one? That's what most of the New Testament is talking about. The book of Acts is about that. Romans is about that. Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews talks about that. The Bible knows what's happening, that this is an unfolding story that we're living in. And you, like you said, dispensations, that's a subject for another time. We're living in the fulfillment. Paul says that the former days were one way and now things have changed because Jesus changed it all. So that's what we mean by comprehensive. You've got to be able to read the story through. And this brings me to a, a another troubling trend, like that alliteration right there, <laughs> troubling trend in biblical studies, which is to overemphasize the differences between the books and the authors and not focus enough on the unity. So let me ask you this, Zach. What is the advantage of focusing on the distinctions and differences between different books and the different authors? What's the advantage of that? It's like we've just been talking about, right? If you you understand that, look over here, James says very strongly that we need to be doing the work that God has laid out for us. And Paul says very strongly that we're not working our way to salvation, but it's by grace that we've been saved. If you don't understand that those things are both in the Bible and you pick up James and you say, see, James says that we've got to work our way to salvation by not understanding that Paul says something that's not contradictory, but is additional, that kind of lays against that and says, yes, and also, (laughs) while we're doing those works, we need to remember that we're not saving ourselves by those works. If you don't understand that there's a little bit of difference there, then you're going to make some big mistakes in interpretation. That's the good side of that. Is, is yes, you yes. should understand that that this is what James says and this is what Paul says and both of these are part of the whole counsel of God. So they both are part of the whole truth about how the you know what we need to know about these things. Yeah, and you learn the contexts that are different. You're yep. not assuming that they're all writing from the same context. I mean, Daniel wrote in Babylon in exile, and that shaped his stories and what he had to say. And you know, Solomon wrote during Israel's golden age, and he kind of writes that way. And so it it further brings color to the scriptures. You realize that different authors use specific words differently. Mm-hmm. So this is an important thing to know that like Paul will use some a lot of words very technically to mean a specific thing. And John, when he uses that word, he might not mean it exactly the way Paul does. Not that the words change meaning, but like Paul, like for when he says flesh, for example, he has a very defined meaning of what that is. Whereas the other authors might use it more neutrally. I think one of the most fascinating things is that Paul tends to talk about salvation as something that has already happened. And Peter tends to talk about salvation as something that is going to happen. And they both do. Like Peter will also mention it as a past event. Paul Mm -hmm. will mention it as a future event. But their emphases are different. And so that helps us to see the, the diversity of Scripture. But when you break it down to where now the differences are way more important than their unity, that's when you get into trouble. Many people, they don't want to talk about biblical theology as a singular thing. They want to talk about biblical theologies, that there is Pauline theology and Johannine theology and Mosaic theology. And there's something to be said for that. Like what if, if by that you mean, what does John emphasize and how does Moses present this same truth? 
But when you start to believe that there is no consistency between them, and, and all you can do is compare them and contrast them and, and say things like, well, they could never have known, right? You know, Paul interpreted the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, but when Amos was writing, he had no idea about Jesus. We have to contradict that because Peter said that that those that Old Testament prophets, when they wrote, they knew they were writing things that were not for their time and things that they didn't even understand. And it was revealed to them that they were serving us, Peter says. So yeah. that's progressive revelation. And it really boils down to the fact that there were disparate authors of the Bible, but ultimately there was only one capital A author of the Bible, and that's the Holy Spirit. So we compare and contrast and see where there might be difference of emphasis. You know, it's like, for example, Malachi is talking all about how you've, you've got to get these sacrifices right. And Isaiah is saying things like, I wish you would just knock off your sacrifices entirely. Well, they're both making essentially the same point, but they're providing a different way of saying it and a different lesson to apply the same same thing. So if you believe that the same Holy Spirit carried each author along, then the process of synthesis and theology and exegesis can be done. So each writer's message is unique, but it's not separate from the Bible's comprehensive message. Well, any, not, any other thoughts on that, Zach? Yeah, not only can it be done, but you would expect... And I can't remember who said, maybe it's C.S. Lewis who talks about how sometimes people, they want it both ways. When you present all of the, the beautiful and deep truths that the Bible has to say on something, they say, oh, it's too complicated. But then when you lay out something that the Bible says it's very clear, they say, no, it's too simple. Where's the complicated stuff? And it's like, look, it's both, right? You And I love what you said, the Bible is an occasional document. You have to remember that too. Sometimes, you know, let's say James is saying, look, you guys need to shape up. So I'm telling you right now that you have to do the work that God has given you. And that's occasional. And when your pastor teaches that message, you receive it and you say, you know what? I, I need to shape up. And there's other times where you come to the Lord and you're in sin and you're you're broken over it. And the Lord says, I'm giving you grace. And Paul says, you know, hey, look, it's okay. Like you're not done. The Lord's gonna got you. Those things are both true. And, and we should expect that since it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there is a depth to the things that the Lord's telling us because we're talking about things that are higher than us, right? Remember, the Lord's condescending to us to help us understand things that are difficult to us to understand, for us to understand. It's like, which is it? Is God so powerful that he can't accurately communicate his truth or is right. he so, so foolish that he can't make it all work together? Right, exactly. So it's like, if we yeah. should expect it, if he's giving us a, a book to explain these crazy things to us, that maybe there's a lot in there and we might not be able to all boil it down to one little statement that says, there, I solved it. It might be a lot of things that we need to keep together in our mind. And and there's a lot of theolo theological truths like that, where you need the whole counsel of God to actually explain the full picture of what that, that doctrine is. Yeah, so as a pastor, when I preach through the Bible, I'm going to preach in accordance with what that passage is saying. Yeah. So yeah. when I'm preaching the verse that says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, that's going to be some hellfire and brimstone because <laughs> that passage is hellfire and brimstone. When I, when I preach Nahum, right, the Lord is jealous and full of anger and his way is in whirlwind and thunderclap, it's going to be a, a, a booming message. But when I read where Jesus said, you know, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but your father does not notice and you're worth more than many sparrows, that's going to be a gentle and kind message. And he right. says, no one will be able to pluck you out of my hand. Now, I, I can't preach fearful thing to fall into the hand of God and then 
immediately undercut it by a different passage in order to soften it. Nor can I read a passage about God's grace and then come in with something harsh in order to make sure that I keep the strength. Preach the lessons that God gave you in the proportion in which he gave them, and you'll have a comprehensive view of the scriptures. So we have a literal hermeneutic. Hermeneutics, again, is the science of interpretation. Literal hermeneutic, historical hermeneutic, a comprehensive hermeneutic, and now we're going to talk about one further thing. This is an illuminated hermeneutic, illuminated. And this one is a lot less out of our hand, a lot more out of our hands than the other ones. It's kind of daunting to think of coming to God's word and interpreting it to figure <laughs> out what it means. At least it ought to be. And then to say, I understand what the Bible says. Yeah. But here's the good, the good news. We're into good news as Christians. The same spirit who inspired the scripture and breathed out the scripture dwells within every believer and works to illuminate the word to the reader. You have the author dwelling within you if you are in Christ Jesus, and he will help you to understand it. Jesus said in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, and who is that helper? The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. What a remarkable Trinitarian verse that is, by the way. But he's saying the Spirit is going to come. He's going to help you. He's going to testify of me, that the Holy Spirit is there to help us understand the Scripture. Now, this was something that I found was really lacking, I don't think, in matters of the heart, but in matters of instruction when I was in school. I would ask my professors, how can we say that we are interpreting God's word spiritually if all we're doing is breaking down words and phrases and grammar and uh, syntax and lexicography? I mean, right, Zach? If this is just mm-hmm. a matter of interpreting words, then anybody can do it. Yep. But the Bible tells us that not everybody can do it. Well, now, now talk about the whole counsel of God and, and laying complementary, not contradictory truths together. We just finished talking about, right, how, look, you've got to pay attention to the historical context. And you've got to pay attention to what it meant to the original people who hear it. And you can't just go off with your own crazy application or allegorical theory. Yes, I believe all that. In addition, I think I would like to emphasize that if all you do, let's be really practical and, and, and pastoral. If you're preparing for to teach a message and all you do is camp out in the Greek and I got the historical stuff and I have prepared an excellent historical lecture on on the book of Romans, <laughs> then I, I, I know I've been there. I've done that. But let me encourage you. There must be something spiritual about what you're bringing before people when you step into the pulpit. And a lot of that sometimes comes down to your application. Your application cannot just be something you tack on. I'm guilty of this sometimes. Something you tack on at the end is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, here's the thing you should do. Your application has to be something you have tarried, you know, is an old word, before the Lord for. that. You've waited until the Lord has told you. Now, how are you going to apply this? And you know what? Sometimes that's where it's okay to have a little spiritual spiritualizing of the text. It's okay to allegorize a little bit. Once you've explained the context, now it's okay to say, well, what would, what does this mean in our lives? Or what does this look like for us? Or how, you know, we just read about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. What what is it like for us when we're in a wilderness time in our lives and the Lord brings us out? That's where you can carefully do that, right? You should have something in your message that an unsaved person could not have. I want to be careful when I say this, you don't make this up. You don't just come up with it, but your message shouldn't be something that an unsaved, smart high schooler could have put together by reading some books. Right. So 
you know, <laughs> I remember one time I had a, a little Pink Floyd phase uh, <laughs> when I was in college and they're, they're still great, but you know, there's only so many times you can listen to the same two or three albums. <laughs> yeah. But I, I watched uh, a video essay of somebody breaking down, uh, I think it was The Wall from Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And he was breaking down how this part relates to this part and this melody comes back over here. And this was going on in his life when he was writing it. And this was the historical scene. And, oh, it's all so brilliant. Are you bringing it all together? Hey, that's really cool. There are people that will do that with movies online now yeah. and, and and actual books. Like You ever buy like an annotated version of uh, some historical book? They're, they're kind of helping you interpret it and understand it. Well, the Bible cannot just be that. Mm. If that's all we have, then it is just a book. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us and speaks to us. And so not only has the Holy Spirit already defined the, shall we say, the boundaries of the pool, to go back to our original analogy, if the, the boundaries and the width of the pool have been predetermined by the Spirit in his word, then it's when the Holy Spirit illuminates us, that's when we see how deep it goes. Mm-hmm. And we learn things about it. And you come to the end and it's like, oh my goodness, just the, the basics of what this sentence means is just the tip of the iceberg of what it means. Right. There's more to it. And i just give you some verses here. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Paul would say in Romans, if the Holy Spirit is not in you, you are not in Christ. Ephesians 6.17 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. That's his sword. That's how he does his work. That's his weapon. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, my preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul's telling us the power of God does not dwell in the Spirit because he's so smart. Or sorry, the the power of the Spirit does not dwell in the Bible because Paul and the other authors are so smart, but because the Spirit inspired it. He wrote it. And a common objection there is that, okay, but different Spirit-filled believers will arrive at different theological conclusions. Mm -hmm. And if the Spirit is speaking to all of them, then how do we know that there's any such thing as truth? Uh, what do you say to that, Zach? How do you answer that question? Um, I think I have two answers, I guess. My first answer is, okay, what do you mean by different theological conclusions? Like, the, by contradictions or just they're seeing and emphasizing different parts of what the Bible says, right? Like, for example, I have great friends who emphasize much more the sovereignty of God. I don't think even they would say that we have different theological conclusions about salvation. They just say, hey, this is what I really see and what's emphasized for me and is laid on my heart. And I emphasize other things. We're we're not, the, the Holy Spirit isn't giving us, feeding us contradictory information about the Bible. We're just captured maybe a little more by certain things. And some of that comes down to our church culture and our tradition, all that. That's fine. There's nothing the matter with that. Now, when there's genuine difference theologically, like, for example, what if I have a brother who I love and he's he's a Christian and we, we study the Bible together, but he doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Okay, that's different. One of us, I think, is right and yes. one of us, I think, is wrong. I will meet him in heaven and we'll hang out together, but I do believe that the Lord will take one of us aside and say, actually, can I just let you know this was correct, right? So there's, and, and a lot of this happens as you get closer and closer to the essential doctrines that we really yes. aren't going to compromise on. I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to tell you that the, you know, that the virgin birth is correct and tell someone else that the virgin birth is actually doesn't really matter. That's not, tr- the, he's the spirit of truth. That's not, so one of those is right. 
But there's plenty of room for there to be difference of non-essential things as we read and interpret scripture. I think that it's totally fair for us to pray and study long and make sure that we're as convinced as we can be of what we see in the word. And that's okay. And you know what? It's okay sometimes for us to debate that. Right. So I think nowadays we get this idea of like, no, 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 stop. We can stop arguing. It's like, look, argue kindly and be be loving to each other. But there's nothing the matter with really going after it in the word together and saying. Let's. Sometimes the spirit works in the dispute as he yeah, brings you two together yeah. through that process. And you both see, you know what? I, 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 I agree with, I, I still agree with what I'm saying, but I'm hearing that you're bringing me to this other emphasis in scripture. So I need to accommodate for that. We both need to make sure that I'm not laying that aside. That's exactly right. And and if you do that lovingly, you're getting a better understanding of the word. And so I don't, people make this big deal out of, oh, you Christian, Christians, you interpret everything all these different ways. And there, there's no such thing as truth because you guys can't even figure it out. I, I often think that that's something people would like to be true. And more often when you really dig down to it, it's like, well, they have a communion this way and you have a communion that way. And it's like, right. But do we both agree that like what's happening here is the same thing? Then yeah. we're, the Holy Spirit is leading us to the same place. Yeah. So I, I think that first of all, that claim, so many people, when they want to blast the church and they want to draw negative statistics about the church, they will include all of these denominations that are dead as a doornail yeah. and kicked the Holy Spirit sure. out a long time ago. There is an in, remarkable so, you know, yeah, okay, everything, before I move on, everything you said is absolutely true, that, yeah, there many times the differences are so overblown. Sure. And in the essentials, we're all being brought to the, to the same point. But I will also say this, I, you know, I don't think that every conclusion that somebody throws out there just because they claim to be a Christian is a is a spirit-filled one. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh well, well <laughs> he's a pastor. It's like all right, but he's also yeah. doesn't believe in the Trinity and doesn't believe the inerrancy of scripture right. and believes there are other ways to heaven. So his interpretation of this passage, if you'll excuse me, is not as valuable as somebody who's does. Absolutely. Jesus said you'll know teachers by their fruit. Right. He said if they if you're not living a godly life, then we as Christians should be very wary about what you have to say, even if you are a scholar of understanding words and mm -hmm. speech and that kind of thing. On top of that, John, especially towards the end of, of the New Testament, and he lived the longest, so he got to see a lot more false teachings rise up. He told us there are certain tenets of the faith that if somebody does not hold, they're, they're not only not saved, they're antichrist. They're antichrist. 100%. So not every dis difference is an actual difference. Sometimes right. this is a false teaching. And uh, so I, everything you said is true. I think primarily when we talk about illumination, we're in the realm of application. We're in the realm mm. of what does this verse mean? Pastor Chuck's uh, radio message. What is the word for today? There have been countless times where I've opened my Bible and I've read something that contextually it has nothing to do with what I'm going through, but God uses a turn of phrase oh, yeah. or a section of verses that this is for you. I know countless people that got saved that way, that got called into ministry that way. Yeah. And that's that's an example of the word of God being alive. And so we who are of a more academic bent should not poo-poo it when somebody says, I read this verse and God spoke to me. Like that verse doesn't even have to do with you. It's like the the word is alive, my yeah, friend. Yeah. The Holy Spirit can cause that word to rise up like a lion and and roar at somebody, even though it wasn't maybe initially intended for them. Keeping in mind that the Holy Spirit has bound his our, the limits of our interpretations by the words that he chose. Right. 
Uh, and we should try very hard not to pit these two things against each other. Well, and that's where a lot of times people like on that specific point, people who are much more emphasizing that, no, no, it's the words say this and this is the context. And so it can't mean that they'll say, and that's why I don't believe that God can speak to you directly because he's already spoken in his word to which I gently say, look, we're allowed to check. <laughs> like exactly yeah. like you're saying it's like look i we're not wide open just because someone says well god said this to me it doesn't mean we're not allowed to check in fact we're told to check we're told to say okay i hear that now what you said that god said does it contradict anything in the word because if it does i'm allowed to say well i don't think god said that to you and if it doesn't contradict anything in the word i'm allowed to say you know what that's pretty cool i bet that god was able to use his word which is alive to speak directly to your situation even using potentially a passage that doesn't have your context in mind because the, the that book wasn't written specifically to you. Right. That that detracts nothing from the word, and and it we don't have to open ourselves to every foolish, false teaching that comes along saying, "Well, God told me that it's it's perfectly fine for me to live in this flagrant, sexual dissipated yeah. lifestyle." That's not the same thing as. Man, I was reading one day in this passage. I know these words didn't originally weren't talking about this, but I, I could see how the Lord applied it to me. It's okay to accept that without accepting the other thing. We can, yeah. there, there's a difference between those two things. Yeah, the, the Lord is able to use his own word that he inspired. But here's something else I want to point out. So we've talked about illumination as bringing us to the essentials of the faith. Yep. We've talked about illumination as giving us solid application. I also think, and, and, and of course, the baked in illumination, you might say, of the text itself. But here's one more thing. I think that you can trace through history how the Holy Spirit has been carefully guiding the church as a whole to correct conclusions on theology, how he has been giving us the correct yes. interpretations. Oh, yeah. I think we talked about the canon of scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminated and guided the church to the canon. He guided somebody like Athanasius, who wildly opposed to his own context said, no, this is true. And then that's mm -hmm. what won out. Martin Luther and the doctrines of grace, John Calvin and Zwingli and those guys, the Holy Spirit was bringing them to firmly state this for the whole church for all time. I would very tentatively suggest that the, the ongoing charismatic movement around the world right now is the work of the Spirit to remind the people of the power of the Spirit, yeah. that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we need. So over time, the Holy Spirit leads us together to certain conclusions. So don't ever sell short the fact that when you're studying the Bible and you might have a slightly different nuance or emphasis on it than somebody else does, that's still within the bounds of, of orthodoxy and all the rest of it, that your little effort in preaching that day might not be part of a larger effort that the Spirit is doing to guide the church into something great and oh, something wonderful. Absolutely. That, that makes it exciting to study the Bible, well, doesn't it? we're participating it? together in the whole work of the capital C Church, which is to make sure that we're lovingly shepherding each other towards the truth. And, and we're doing that through study of the Bible. That's a whole project that we're all doing together. And we're doing it not just well, I think this and you think that in my culture, but we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it's a supernatural process that we're all taking part of. It's the coolest thing ever. And not only that, but you can see that in history. Like I said, I just finished reading that book about the early fathers. You can see them say, okay, we... We're learning about the Trinity, but the Donatists are wrong and the, and the Gnostics are wrong and this is wrong. And they're slowly, the, they're all getting together. And right, much trying less, to come to a positive statement of the yes, truth is, is sometimes harder than identifying what's not right. Much <laughs> less slowly than some scholars want you to believe. They, they were getting it pretty quickly, but they were, they, were, they were doing the hard work and we get to benefit now. We don't have to argue about the Trinity anymore. We get to benefit from the hard theological work that was done by these guys saying, you know what, that I, I, we're, we are figuring this out, but that is 
aberrant. That's heretical because of this and this and this, right? And, and the same work, like you said, I believe is being done over issues of the Holy Spirit today, where we're saying, you know what? That's kooky, but you can't get rid of this. Mm-hmm. That's We don't do that, but we can't not do this. We have to do that, right? I, I would add also, out. I'd say the work that theologically is being done in, in the uh, section of anthropology, yeah. which is not mm-hmm. anybody's favorite section Absolutely. of systematic theology, but like the question of what is a human is mm-hmm. huge right now. And the church is having to come up with, with answers to questions that we've never had to formulate before because right. it's never been questioned before. But we have answers, and it turns out the Bible has an awful lot to say about these things. Right. And so that's that's what the Spirit does. So so then, Zach, to finish this section up, how important is prayer when you're studying the Bible? Well, <laughs> look, I mean, if you, if you want to be able to, and I think about this every time I prepare to teach, if I want to be able to interpret the Bible in a way that is more spiritual than a pagan— then I have to be closer to God than a pagan. I have to, and that doesn't put me on a pedestal. I'm saying I have to go check with the Lord. I can't just prepare a whole teaching and say, you know what? I really broke that passage down really well. Great. That's a mechanical, you should just be, I'm, I don't want to discourage anybody. You're going to get good at that. You should just get good at that. That's a skill. It doesn't always require a lot of spiritual effort. It's just a skill. You just break down the passage. Oh yeah. When it's time for me to make a Bible study, I, I very rarely feel inspired when I start. It's like just sit down right. and start writing. That's just the, the work. If you don't be discouraged by that, the spiritual work comes when you've finished the mechanical work and you say, "Look, Lord, th- here's some things I could say. What do you want me to say?" And when you step up to speak the word, you you should, I think, expect and say, "Lord, if you're not coming to help me to say what is right for these people right now on this occasion, right, then I, I'm not ready to go up yet." And I do, I mean, if you're not, if you're not waiting in prayer like that, and I'm speaking to myself sometimes, you, you're not waiting in prayer long enough because yes. you, you you can't just say, here's some things about this passage I read. You're standing up in a pulpit. You're speaking, you're, the Bible says we're speaking as if we speak the oracles of God. Yeah. Like, you got to take that seriously. And so there is a spiritual responsibility you have to have heard from the Lord. And, and, and I try and ask myself, can I honestly tell people the Lord spoke this to me to say to you? Yeah, and you need to recognize, too, that the Holy Spirit, if you're preaching, the Holy Spirit is illuminating the word to your hearers through you. Yep. You know, a lot of God's processes are not not quite as magical as we try to make them sound. They're, they're very <laughs> natural, and I mean, supernatural, mm-hmm. but, you know, through the word, Paul calls through the foolishness of preaching to save those who are lost. Right. Right? It's that That's what you're doing. And how many times have you been preaching and you you think you just kind of laid an egg on the stage and somebody comes up and they say, <laughs> yep. I want to give my life to Jesus today. It's like, after that one? Are you serious? <laughs> right. Because the Holy Spirit was doing the work. So this is our fourth principle is that we have an illuminated hermeneutic. We spot, we pause, and we wait for the Spirit. If we believe in God, read the Bible as if God was real. Don't get mm. trapped reading it like it's a math equation to solve. Right. Yeah, listen to the voice of the Lord. Who knows if the Lord might not give you exactly what's right in that passage and, and guide you toward correct interpretations. We, we need to read the Bible like disciples. Mm. They were learning from God. We're not, I've got this, stand out of my way. So these are our our four principles of Bible study of, of hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. We have a literal hermeneutic. The Bible is to be interpreted according to the usual rules of language. We have a historical hermeneutic. We search for authorial intent and understanding context to determine what a text means. 
Number three, we have a comprehensive hermeneutic. The whole Bible needs to be brought together to arrive at correct conclusions. And number four, we have an illuminated hermeneutic. We recognize in humility the active work of the Holy Spirit, and we seek his help in interpretation as we do the work. Mm -hmm. Those are four pretty good principles, I think. And it goes right back to the fact that this is a theological matter we're discussing. And similar to like what we said about the canon, if somebody is not going to approach this theologically, I mean, they are, even if they won't say they are, but I mean, if they're not going to acknowledge the role of God in studying the Bible, they really have nothing to say to us. They might be able to tell us how, how to understand the difference between a gerund and a participle, but that's not the same thing as knowing the difference between truth and error in God's scripture. So that those are our four. Any thoughts on the principles before we get to our, our steps of Bible studies, Zach? Other than to say that I've, you know, I've been exposed to, and I've carefully exposed myself to a lot of other ways to read scripture. And I'm pretty convinced that this is the good one. <laughs> I mean, and I'll just go ahead and say that. I mean, I look, I know that there's different, I know that there's people out there who are great believers and shoot some of my heroes of the faith that would have disagreed with what I just said about how to read scripture. That's okay. I am personally in studying and in watching the fruit of teachers who do this. I'm convinced that this is the best way the best hermeneutic to approach scripture. And I, I I would hold that up against other ways and say, look, but this one allows me to be flexible and to see all of the truths in scripture. It protects me from taking big allegorical flights of fancy. It includes the role of the Holy Spirit and doesn't take him out. Those are all important. And I think that's, that's why I think it's a good one and I'd recommend it to you. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to now the actual work of Bible study and interpretation. Mm -hmm. And we're going to give you a pretty simple formula that has been used by just about everybody. Uh, and it's it's still a great place to start. It's a three-step method of interpreting the Bible. And keeping all of the theology in mind, uh, we're going to run through these three steps, and uh, then we will wrap it up for today. So the first one, when you're coming to your Bible, knowing everything that we know about it, that you've got the right books and the right text, and this is the method we're going to approach it with, the first thing you do when you come to the text is observation. The first step is observation, that you are going to see everything that is in the text mm -hmm. to start. And it is remarkable how much you can find if you just take the time to look yeah. at the Bible. How many times have you been reading through the scripture and you read a familiar passage and you go, oh, I didn't know that. That was in yep. there. I remember one time watching like Prince of Egypt or, or the Ten Commandments or some story. And I'm like, they added all this extra stuff. And I go back and read it again. I'm like, oh, no, that was in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, they did actually give the name of that character. And oh, okay, if you read Hebrews, it does say this bit. So, okay, I was not working with all of the data. And that's really what observation is, Zach, right? Is to, to start by looking at what's actually there. Yep. And and when you first go, if, if, you, if maybe your pastor has asked you, could you go prepare to teach a study for something that... To me, this is the most intimidating thing is people say, go study it for X amount of hours. And I'll say, okay, but what, what do I do? <laughs> like what practically am I doing? And this is, this is how you practically start. You sit down and I don't know how you do this practically, Tyler, but I, I just try and read the passage over and over and over. Sometimes I try and read it in different translations. Sometimes if you're this kind of person, you can listen to it on like an audio Bible, whatever you need to do, but make sure it's not just, okay, I've read that twice and I'm moving on to the next step. You, you want to expose yourself to that big chunk of scripture. Maybe read before, right? Context, maybe read a little bit before before you're going to teach oh, and a little bit after. Maybe spend your, if you have the time and, and you don't always have the time, right? Sometimes you don't have that luxury, but if you have the time, maybe read the whole book 
and, and say, okay, but where does this fit within all of the other things that are being said? So that when you go to actually break it down, you're not gonna make mistakes that you could have prevented by actually knowing, number one, what's in these verses here, and number two, what's in the next verse oh, yeah. and the verse right I, you, before. You absolutely need to do that. Yep. Especially if your passage that you're teaching starts with the word, but, or <laughs> therefore, yep. or, or something like that. Paul's letters, if a passage, I mean, a lot of our favorite memory verses start with for, Right? For the wages of sin is death. That that four is pointing behind it <laughs> to something that came before it. So you've got to look at the context. And especially if you're doing a short book, like if you're doing some anything like Ephesians or shorter, at least, read the whole thing and see where your passage fits in the whole. Right. And and maybe you you'll realize that, okay, the point I thought this was trying to make is actually not the point that he's making. So read the whole thing. Like and I mean like several times, slow down and really savor mm-hmm. each word, read it out loud to yourself. And sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll see that there's a, there's a rhythm or there's a flow to it. Like earlier when I read John 15, six, and I go, man, that's a really great Trinitarian verse. If you're just blowing through that, you're going to miss the fact that Jesus goes father, son, Holy spirit twice in that mm-hmm. same verse. So knowing that you go, okay, so this verse speaks of God's threeness and his oneness. And you've got to have a, a notebook or a computer or something yep. open for this. You've got to be writing things down. You you ask the classic questions, who, what, where, when, why, who is involved in this story? Who are the characters, right? What are they doing? Just write down the basic, what are the events of this? Uh, where is this happening? What's the setting? When is this happening? Is this the night that Jesus is going to be crucified? Is this right after the exile of the children of Israel? Why? What is the purpose of this? And then you can ask those same questions a level higher about the text itself. It's like a meta-analysis, as in who is the author of this passage? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they writing? This The book of Hebrews. Well, what is the book of Hebrews for, right? When was this book written? Prior to you know, David or after David, prior to Babylon or after Babylon, when, you know, when was it, what was the, they trying to say, why was this written? What's the purpose of it? Right. You know, sometimes the books will just come out and tell you, right. I've written these things that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything in this book is trying to communicate that purpose. And this is where a good, um, a good Bible background can help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can give you some of the, that information. It's not going to be right there in the text. And then um, this is when you got to do a lot of cross-referencing as well, Zach, to see, get that comprehensive picture of what else in the Bible addresses this. Is this passage quoting another passage? Right. Does this passage remind you of any other verses? Can you think of another verse that might have something else to say? And that's, I, I found, where a lot of my observation will happen. And yeah, yeah, the cross-references are super helpful. Get something like a Treasury of Scripture Knowledge or a Blue Letter Bible or something like that. We'll have or even it just built a good in. study Bible. Yeah, we'll have the little cross-references. It's also important, like, we're not opening a commentary yet, Mm-mm. and we're not trying to make you, you can't skip to application yet or notes like like yeah. what I've all I'll do when I'm making notes here is I'll, I'll make those really simple observational notes. OK, well, so and so is talking. He's talking to these people. OK, well, this over here says that this was the situation. right? I make those notes. And then sometimes it's helpful to me. I, I paraphrase the verse too. I'll, I'll kind of almost write out what it's being said, but I'll kind of put it in my own words or restate it. And then I'll check and say, wait, did I do that accurately? Or am I kind of straying from that? Because that will help me maybe to understand it better and and get the sense of what's being said, right? And I usually do that by checking a couple other translations too, so that I'm seeing, okay, here's the different ways this could be translated. And this is where, if you know Greek and Hebrew, this is the time to break that out. Yep. 
Uh, this is, if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, this is the time to maybe find a good resource that mm-hmm. allows you to see what the Greek and Hebrew say. Yeah. And you are trying to be able to articulate what this passage says. We're not interpreting it yet. Right. You know, we're just saying this is what it says. And I mean, honestly, I still do this less than I used to. Sometimes it's as much as diagramming the sentences. I've, I've gotten sermon outlines from sentence diagrams because Paul with these long, deep, complex sentences, you're like, all right, he's actually got three modifiers of this one sentence. So this one fundamental sentence is my main point, uh-huh. and these are my three sub points to support it. That, that's, that's what you've got to do is you want to know everything about this passage. You don't want someone to come up to you after you preached and said, <laughs> uh, but it says in the next verse... Right. This and this, and you totally missed that. Yep. You, you've got to be the resident expert on that passage before you move on. And let me help you too by like, if that's in, if that sounds super intimidating to you, oh, but I don't know Greek. Look, I, I took a little bit of Greek in college. I remember way less than I wish I did. You can do this. You can yes. go on Logos. You can go on Blue Letter Bible. It's absolutely free. Get a and, good interlinear Bible yep, with your you favorite can, translation. You can break down. You can see how it's going to show you basically the skeleton of that Greek or Hebrew passage and say, okay, this is why they translate it this way is this verse can mean these many things, but they were, or this word can mean these many things, but they were selecting this meaning because of this context. And it will show you, and it, it's, it's very easy for you to learn how to work through the passage, even if you aren't a Greek scholar. And it's very important that you do that because a lot of times, and and that you learn to do it well, because a lot of times you can either say a passage means something, but have neglected to actually check, does that go with what the Greek meaning is? Or you say, because of a kind of little thing you snatched out of the Greek, therefore it must mean this, and you didn't go deep enough to actually understand what that means. And those are both things you can correct. It's you can do it. Yes, but you, you have can. to do the work. And this is the longest section. This is going to take up the most of your time. This is you chasing down words. What does this word mean? How else does Paul use it? Uh, does James use this word and does he use it differently? Like This is all of that. That's now, a good point because yeah. I think we're tempted to do it the other way. We're tempted to skip this and then go to like the how am I going to really sermonize this and say it just right? And instead it's like, well, that should come from all the work you put in here. Yeah, see everything that's in front of you, right? right? You need to be able to see all of it. And then you can move on to step two, which is interpretation. Mm -hmm. So observation, now we've moved on to interpretation. This is taking all of the data that you have collected and you're going to sort them out and you're going to say, what does this mean? This is not yet getting preaching points. This is, what is this passage trying to teach? So... For example, when Jesus said, I will send to you another helper um, when I have ascended, right? His, his, the interpretation is when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's a theological conclusion. Now, that might seem super basic. It's not always going to be that basic, but that's, a, that's an interpretation. That's the meaning of that passage. Mm-hmm. Now, there's more that you can do to that. Like you you maybe okay, well, I, some of my cross-references uh, seem to contradict this a little bit. So you have to interpret what is the balanced uh, statement. Like the, the um, we used to call them in school, the proposition of this passage. Like what is Paul trying to get at? So when he says, let no one cast judgment on you uh, regarding food or drink or a Sabbath or a new moon, an interpretive conclusion of that would be Christians are not under the New Testament, the Old Testament law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a theological conclusion. And then you'd say uh, for the, these are shadows of the former things, but the substance is Christ. An interpretive conclusion would be the Old Testament sacrificial system 
was prophetic of Jesus right. fulfilled at the cross. And can you see how it's so important that you've done your observational work? Because if you haven't done all that work of digging up those cross references and seeing the, the, the observational step is where you also get that kind of pan around scripture and do the full counsel of God check and say, well, wait, what else does the Bible say about this topic? Yeah, like if you read that verse and you don't know what the heck a new moon is, exactly. you're going to be in trouble. And, so go look it up. <laughs> and then your your interpretation might be really badly flawed because you're basically just looking with this tiny microscope at this passage and saying, well, I think the interpretation is this. And that might totally, that might actually contradict. You might run afoul of another passage that would tell you, no, that can't be the, contra that can't be the interpretation because this passage says this. So that's why you need to do that work of, of going into the cross-references and making sure you're aware of what else does the Bible say about this so I don't end up saying something that is actually wrong according to another passage. Yeah, so your, your observation list that you're writing down is going to be very long, like pages long. Especially if you get you fall down a rabbit hole, and those are fun. That's mm -hmm. where that's where I get more people telling me they enjoyed the Bible study is when I say let's use that new moon analogy. Now Paul mentions the new moon. Let's look back. Where did God first authorize these ceremonies? It's right here. And maybe you, you pulled out a history book and you kind of found out what would have been done at the culture in that time, and then you you see what are some stories that involved new moon festivals and where did the prophets talk about new moons and you you don't you're not going to use all of that, but you're going to synthesize it down, and then you're going to provide your next category, which is interpretation, this category is gonna be a lot shorter. You're maybe gonna have two or three interpretive conclusions. Like if you're doing the story where Jesus walks on water, you know, and an, an interpretive conclusion would be Jesus was more than a man because he the, mm -hmm. because nature obeyed him. Right, so that's an interpretive conclusion. You even can interpret that Jesus was God because nature only listens to God when he speaks. And you support that with all these verses that talk about the waves being in submission to the Lord and the fact that the disciples worshiped him. And with so, other references, then you say, yeah. okay, this doesn't, I can I can also demonstrate that from other places in scripture. Look, see how this, this conclusion I've reached agrees with the full counsel of God. That's where you do that in this step, right? Yeah, double check your interpretations. Yes. Sometimes you wanna almost <laughs> be like a lawyer Mm -hmm. with your own interpretations is like, can I disprove this? Now, listen, if you find something that seems to disprove it, double check and make sure that you are not uh, misinterpreting or misobserving something. Mm -hmm. It's very often, oh, it says this. It's like, yeah, but that's not really what that means. That's not really what that says. You know, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I was wrong. And if you if you come across something that seems so wild and crazy and you've never heard it, you might want to just kind of watch out. Yep. But I mean, <laughs> sometimes you will get wild and crazy interpretations and sometimes you're not even quite sure how to phrase it. Like when, one of my favorite verses when John says, when the son of man comes, we do not know what we will be for we will see him as he is. Mm -hmm. And it's like the apostle, the observation, the apostle doesn't know what a person will be after the resurrection. And the reason he gives for that is because we will see God as he is. Why does that matter? Because no one can see God and live, mm -hmm. but we're going to see God, which means what will we be? Now, your interpretive conclusion would be, you know, the the frame and the nature of humanity might change when we get to eternity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and then th that's an, an interpretive conclusion. And um, these are going to be like your big points, in in your sermon, if you're putting it together, we haven't really not really getting to sermon prep. I think we'll do a whole other yeah, podcast on that. But these are going to be your your big points. These are the lessons that you've got to communicate. These are going to be things like Christians are not under the New Testament law. God is three and God is one. Uh, you know, it is it is 
wrong to engage in homosexuality. Like these are interpretive conclusions and, and you're trying to determine what the passage means. Yep. And then and then you kind of transition, well, let's say, to okay, that's this so far we we're preparing this excellent biblical lecture. And where you want to land the plane, as people have described it to me, is now how do you help people understand what that means for them? Right. So what right. is the question and you want to answer? Exactly. And 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 you wanna and I've been instructed before, it's like you wanna make sure that you don't if you end your message and it was a lot of information that was up here, you can't see me, but I'm kind of gesturing up in there, up here <laughs> above people's head, and you never bring that down for them and say, Now this is the beauty of theologically what this means, and this is what this means for you tomorrow morning. If you never do that, then you're going to have a lot of people who might be kind of nodding and smiling, but they might walk away not knowing, well, what does the Lord want me to do? And that's, you can't leave them without that. Right. You, you have to take that to the next step. And that's our third step, which is application. So observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, so what? Right. What am I to do with this information? So now that I know what this passage says and I understand it very well, I also know how it fits in our understanding of theology and God, and I know the lesson that it was trying to communicate. Now we want to figure out how does this apply to my life? How do I live out the truth that I've seen here? So, for example, when you, I was just quoting from Colossians a minute ago where he says, let no one cast judgment on you in regards to new moon or festival, etc." Well, that one has the application right in it. He says, let no one judge you. And so then your application, you might want to get specific with it. Uh, things like when somebody tells you on the internet that you're going to hell for worshiping on Sunday, you do not need to take that <laughs> seriously, right? That's application. <laughs> or an application would be, I do not have to keep the Sabbath, you know? And, and that's an application point. Or if Jesus is, the, is, is part of the triune God, then that means when I worship the Lord, I need to worship him in Trinity and that our language needs to be in Trinity. You could apply that. How many of our songs are, are really emphasizing the triune nature of God? And th these are application points. And if you get a good application point, this is when the, the audience, when they hear you will go, mm. <laughs> when Epiphans from yeah, information yeah. to application, that's when it starts to come home. If you've done a good job of teaching the passage, when you start to apply the passage, they're going to be right there with you. And uh, a good application has been set up by solid interpretation. Right. And, and this is also where you want to be careful. Just one concern here is you don't want to do what you were talking about before. You don't want to, let's say you're in a passage that's all talking about God's sovereignty. This is not where you take a left turn and say, but really what we need to know about is that you you have free ch choice. Well, yeah, but the, but, but right. that's, that's a bad application of that passage. Why? Because the message that Paul is emphasizing, let's just say Paul in Romans or whatever, is look at how the Lord is taking care of you and his grace is taking care of you. You, you want to emphasize that. You want to teach an application that applies that to people's lives and say, therefore, you don't have to be bound up in anxiety about your salvation. Therefore, you don't need to be worried that you're going to make the wrong misstep. You can trust. You want to, you want to, the, the application should kind of be in a line with the teaching of the, of the interpretation observation, right? It shouldn't kind of take a left turn all of a sudden. Right. I, I think um, this is, there. you know, different teachers have different strengths or, or, tones, you know, uh, somebody like, you know, Pastor Chuck or mm -hmm. somebody like Norman Geisler. I mean, they're teachers, 
primarily their teachers. Or, you know, you get other teachers that are theologians. Like, they're going to give you some great meat and potatoes theology, right? And then you get some guys that application is where they rock and where they roll. And this is, I think, a lot of popular preachers. So guys like Tony Evans and Adrian Rogers, mm. who, of course, are very theologically astute and know their word. They, they live at this level of, an, of application. And if you watch them or listen to them, they'll lay down the truth very plainly, and then they'll pivot to the therefore. And we need to make right. sure we get to the therefore, not just mm. having knowledge, but not doing anything with it. I mean, all the Old Testament stories, like you read about how they, God provided manna in the wilderness, and our, our interpretation might be God is able to provide food for his people. So then the application is, so I know you might be worried about where your next check is going to come from. God's got it. That's application. And right. this is some Bible scholars and theologians will kind of look down on this level and feel like it's not real academic scholarly work if you don't get there. But you have to get there because the Bible is not just a, a facts book. Right. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a guide for life and it's a guide for belief. And if you can't take it home with you, and I, when I preach, I like to say, what is one thing that people can do today to honor this passage that we yep. studied this morning. Yep. And that's, it's, of course, a place where you got to be careful, right? You don't want to be overstating or making some application that says, you know, because of this promise in Scripture, you can go claim that if that's not what that text says. But you've already done that careful work in observing and interpreting and making sure that you're aware of that. So you're not going to fall into that, hopefully, pitfall of, of overstating the application. But like you said, you also don't want to understate it. You can't, you can't teach a whole passage, let's say, in the Old Testament and kind of close the book and say, well, that happened. And then just right. kind of walk away, right? Like, yeah, that's true. It did happen. That's great. But what, so what for me, right? And and that's why it's so important to make sure, like you said, that you're drawing out because the New Testament says very clearly that was written for our instruction, not just for our knowledge. It was written to teach us something. And therefore we need to kind of dig sometimes a little to find out, okay, what is the Lord telling us through this passage? Yep. And I would say, at least in terms of Bible teaching, you'll have some weeks that are going to be pretty heady. You're going to have... Mm -hmm observation and interpretation weeks. But you also need to make sure that even in those weeks you have application and that you try to live in that as much as you can. And uh, that that is something that you have to grow in. Most Bible students by, who want to become preachers are, are kind of like eggheads. They love the information and they want to kind of yada yada through the application. I would encourage you to spend more time than you think you need in the application and not just what to do with it, but come up with some specific examples and illustrations of what must be done. And that's what, what really brings Bible study home, that we've gone from the beginning of the inspiration of God going through our hermeneutic, and now it's gone down to the point, what must I do today? Yep. And that's application. So those are our three steps of Bible study. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what must I do? Or so what might be a, a better way. Uh, and those are all based on our four principles of hermeneutics, which are a literal hermeneutic, a historical hermeneutic, a comprehensive hermeneutic, and an illuminated hermeneutic. And we hope that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you through this today as well. You can see how we've kind of moved from the outside talking about the Bible and we're getting all the way down to the interpretation of it. And um, I, I think our next couple will probably be real practical about how to how to use it and, and to love it in your everyday life. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. We will see you next time on the Ironworks podcast. God bless you.